Welcome to another episode of Faithfully Podcast, the flagship podcast of Faithfully Magazine, owned and operated by Faithfully Media. In this episode, Associate Editor Timothy Isaiah Cho speaks with pastor and author Mitchell Lee about his latest book, Even If, Trusting God When Life Disappoints, Overwhelms, or Just Doesn't Make Sense. Mitchell Lee, uh, you are the lead pastor of Grace Community Church in Maryland. Um, Can you tell us a bit about yourself and your work? Let's see. I've been in pastoral ministry since 1998. I was born and raised in Maryland, but uh, I like to say that I became adult, an adult when I got married and moved to Chicago, and that was in 2004, and I was in Chicago for eight years, doing some grad school, but also uh, pastoring at a church in the western suburbs, and then in 2012, we moved back to Maryland, where I joined a church called Grace Community Church as the young adult and teaching pastor. And in 2016, became the lead pastor here, receiving the baton uh, from the pastor who'd been here for 28 years at the time. Oh, wow. Uh, Big shoes to fill. Yeah, it really was. And it was really quite uh, unheard of. You know, he was a, um, you know, white pastor who um, I didn't come here thinking that I would get received the baton from him. I just came here because I felt like the Lord was adding us to the church. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in 2015, when he asked if I would pray about uh, succeeding him and then just all the elders, uh, interviews with our elders, that whole process uh, really was quite a remarkable uh, transition. It's been a tough transition as well, mm-hmm. but, um, and that's all before the pandemic. And then the pandemic just kind of just added to that. Uh, the most important things about me, uh, my wife is Sarah. I have five children, uh, Calvin. Noah, Benjamin, Beatrice, and Owen, and they keep me sane while making me insane at the same time. So it's quite a, a mysterious tension, uh, <laughs> but that's that's who I am. I'm the uh, son of a uh, Korean immigrants who immigrated to uh, Maryland in 1974, and I was born the following year. Hmm. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for that background. Um, you know, as we uh, as I read through your book, you know, the uh, the origins of the idea of your book, uh, it's very personal to you, right? Um, can you give us a little bit of a, a glimpse into, you know, how did the phrase, even if, right, the, the main title of your book, how did that phrase from the book of Daniel become, come alive for you, actually, for the first time? And when did you realize that um, that truth of even if should be shared with others um, in a book? Yeah, you know, it was in a, I was in a very dark valley. I had uh, just graduated from seminary. Uh, and then like right before I graduated from seminary, about two months before that, I was fired from my church that I was serving at. And this was my home church, a Korean immigrant church, grown up there, uh, came to Christ there. And I'd been there for 20 plus years. And it was devastating to me. I And the timing of it, I had been traveling to North Carolina for three years, back and forth on the weekdays, weekends, uh, to do my seminary thing, just so I could serve at my home church and lead the youth ministry. And to get let go just before I was graduating, I I was just reeling, man. I mean, I just felt like I just got punched in the gut. And I thought the Lord had passed me by. I mean, I really thought, like, what did I do? Did I do some kind of, was I guilty of some kind of disqualifying sin? What was it? Uh, it was a wilderness, and mm. I 
you know, right in that wilderness, uh, I was in a really dark place, but, um, Hey, you know, I still had this giftedness. Right. And so I was speaking at retreats and doing all this stuff just to earn a paycheck. And one of those retreats, there was a small Korean church plant that asked me to come and lead their English ministry that was non-existent. Yeah. And in, in a place of real emotional unhealth, I signed on because I needed the paycheck. And that lasted exactly one year. Um, got fired again. So I have that boast that I got fired from two churches in like, uh, you know, 15 month period um, without committing a really deep disqualifying sin. I just was in this wilderness again. It was like the Lord was shaking me to get a, uh, get my attention. And it was in that period after, after my second firing thinking like, ah, I don't want anything to do with anything. I was managing my mom's deli. And in that process, I'm listening to the radio and there's this Chuck Colson broadcast that comes on. It's called Breakpoint. And the whole point of this short, like five minute broadcast or episode was that we don't know the Bible. Like people today don't know their Bibles. And he talked about this story about a British regiment at Dunkirk that was stuck. And they, they sent this message up to in the, across the English Channel to a, a fearful British uh, citizenry saying, even if. And the whole point of the broadcast was like, today, we wouldn't even know where even if came from. And it comes from Daniel chapter three. And I'm listening to this, not in mystery, have my summary degree. I'm like, yeah, I don't know what that even if is. I'm going to go look it up. Hmm. And so I start reading this passage of Daniel three and um, it wrecked me. It wrecked me. The, the fact that these three young men facing this, incredible furnace could say God can save us, but even if he doesn't do what we want him to do, even if he doesn't do what we know he could do, we're going to continue to worship him. That kind of faith was so different than what I felt like I had built my faith and relationship with God around, which was, you know, oh, God's going to do these incredible things in my life. He's going to work his plan. Even in an immigrant mentality, yes, there's a theology of suffering there, but I was thinking, okay, it's always going to be upward and to the right. You know, there'll be some suffering, but it's always going to be up into the right. And being jobless, churchless, um, faced with no prospect of ever getting back into ministry, that that even if changed my relationship with God, because very painfully and tearfully, I was able to declare, well, even if God, I never pastor a church again, like even if I never fulfill my potential, I'm going to worship you because you're worthy of worship. I gave that message. I remember the first time I gave that message. Um, someone actually invited me to my old youth pastor invited me to come to California uh, to speak that message. And I declined him twice. I said, I don't think I should go. Um, and he said, no, I think you're ready. And so I gave this message and about even if right out of Daniel three and the response was crazy. I mean, it was just crazy. The kids were, I mean, this was a student ministry treat and, um, I got emails afterwards. I got kids writing songs about this thing. I mean, wow. Yeah, it was just wild. And then, so I started preaching this message again and again. This was 2003, um, all through the Midwest, because I ended up going to Chicago. And it was about 2000, I want to say 2010. I was talking with a friend. I'm like, man, I would love to write about this one day. I don't know if I will ever do it, but I think I would love to. And then the rest is history. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that's powerful. 
Um, you mentioned a little bit about uh, your experience as a child of Korean immigrants, and um, it, it's a lot of parallels to my own story. I'm, I'm also a child of Korean immigrants, and um, can you talk about how that particular experience um, shaped you as a person, um, and how you know your child of an immigrant experience uh, may have enhanced aspects of the Christian life that um, you may not have gotten otherwise? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, I was talking with a a guy from the Asian American Christian Collaborative. This is a few months ago. And he pointed that out, actually. I didn't even notice it in the book, actually. He pointed out the thread of the immigrant experience that had that was repeating through the book. And I was like, man, you're, you're right. And I've been doing some thinking on that. Um, when I think about just what we've received from the immigrant generation, you know, they, they oftentimes just get a really bad rap and, oh gosh, you know, the cultural dissonance and, you know, we, we were our parents' retirement plans and all, you know, all that sort of stuff. The thing that stands out to me is the beauty of resilience and resolve. And I got to see this actually really evolve in my own parents' marriage. My dad was not a believer early on in my in my life. And to see him come to Christ and to see him, yes, carry his demons, but to see him being slowly sanctified and transformed was very, very powerful because I saw how, you know, immigrants have this you know, in the world, words of Lin-Manuel Miranda, right? We get the job done, right? Immigrants get the job done. But there's a kind of resilience and resolve that's just like your willpower. And then when, when, when faith gets a hold of that, there's this enduring, persevering steadfastness that I am indebted to from, from my mom and dad in terms of trusting in the faithful provision of God, the goodness of God, even when they didn't know how it was going to work out. And I could give you story after story, some that I'm just even finding out now um, of, oh, my gosh, that's what was happening behind the scenes in their hearts and in their minds and in their relationship that they didn't let us, me and my sister, in on. So example, that would be, you know, I helped my mom, who's a widow now, move into, uh, I won't call it my childhood home, but a home, the home that, that uh, my sister really grew up in and I grew up in as a college student. Hmm. And as I'm moving her into this townhome, we're moving her back in. She's just telling me stories of how God provided that townhouse when they had just filed bankruptcy and we didn't know where we were going to live. And I had no idea all of those pressures and things were going on. And she, my mom was just telling me how she was just wrestling, literally wrestling with the Lord. Like, I believe that you are good and whatever you need to do, Lord. And if you're going to send us out of here, if we're not going to get a home, we're going to worship you. Like she didn't even use the words, even if, but there it was. Hmm. This declaration repeated. And I mean, I'm sure any any kid of immigrants who had a faith in the Lord, if you stop and remember long enough, you'll see those even if sort of bursts, I'll call them. Hmm. Uh, because the even if declaration, it isn't a one-time declaration. Hmm. It's It's more like a tapestry where each moment you have the chance to put your faith and trust in the goodness of God, even when it's not what you expected. Every time you get a chance to do that, you're like pulling one thread through your even if tapestry, right? So whether it's, if it's not graduating seminary and with no job, even if I'm going to worship you, or if it's your, 
man, when, how am I going to get married? And will I get married? And even if I don't, God, I'm going to worship you. Or even if we move to Chicago and it's a total failure, we're going to worship you. Or even if we move back to Maryland and we have to start all over, we're going to worship you. Each of these moments give us that. And I look at my immigrant experience and my parents at these different moments. Uh, I'm really, really humbled and grateful that they could have that kind of faith in the goodness of God, even when they couldn't necessarily see it. Hmm. In your book, you uh, provide a helpful distinction between um, an even if outlook and uh, I think you call it an if only sort of outlook. Um, can you unpack that sort of distinction between those two things and hmm. maybe even provide some sort of like guidance, you know, what might be some sort of spiritual practices to help people see when they've kind of teetered into an if only sort of outlook and how to bring them back into an even if outlook. Yeah. You know, so the broader category of like, if only, or, or even it's, it's uh, related uh, thinking of only if, or what if these, these three uh, general ideas or ways of thinking, I call them counter ifs broadly. And what counter ifs are is, they are ways that we try to cope with the inevitable gap between what we had hoped for, expected, and what is. So our hopes and expectations, like reality will never look like our hopes and expectations. It's always been that way, right? But the funny thing is, we're always surprised when it doesn't, even though it's always been that way. (laughs) There's always this gap. And so we develop oftentimes very, as just a matter of survival, we develop these counter ifs, the only if, the condition. God, if you, only if you do this thing, uh, will I worship you or will I know that you're good? Or sometimes we think God has a counter on, a a conditional on us. Only if you did do this thing and you didn't, therefore you're going to get this. Mm. Or the if onlys that you were pointing out, these regrets. And that's a really, I find that one, the most subtle and the one that actually keeps the most people stuck. And it's these regrets that we have. And they're oftentimes time oriented. So sometimes people are trapped by these, if only regrets of their past and their broken past. Like if only I hadn't done that, or if only I had done a, uh, not made that mistake or made that error. And we, we feel like we have to live our lives right now to try to make up for that if only past that broken, the broken past. Or there's some people who maybe they grew up in the church or maybe they had some kind of faith. They have this memory of a golden past. It's this nostalgia. If only I could get back to that thing, then, then my life would matter. If I only, I could have the faith that I did when I was a youth or a a student or after that mission trip, we think we can get back to that, that if only. So that's a sort of nostalgic golden past. Mm -hmm. But then there's also this like where I think I should be right now, the if onlys. And I call that our fantasy present. And it's the person I think I should have been by now. I should be by now. So let me drill in on that one because that one I think I just is so operative for people. I and and now that I tell you this, or you know, someone's reading this, they're gonna I hope that it'll help them identify when they do it, but when also when somebody else does it. Mm. It's kind of this idea of we have this imagined version of ourselves that we think we should be right now. So, and it doesn't matter whether it's success or failure. Example of this in 2016, the day after my installation service, and I'm, 
I received the baton. I'm the lead pastor of this uh, 3,500 3, person, predominantly white mega church. The day after I come into my office and this crazy voice in my head, man, that you, sh- and I'm, how old was I at the time? I was 41, right? And this voice in my head is, if only you had done this five years ago, it took you long enough. If o- mm-hmm. It's like, it was just like, if only fantasy present were Like I was comparing myself to the Mitchell Lee version of me that became a lead pastor at the age of 30. Mm-hmm. And it's just this like crazy, like, wait a second, wait a second. And I found myself like getting discouraged because I wasn't keeping up to some timeline that was in my imaginary head, my imposter version. And I see that all over the place. I, I, I see it. And sometimes in my wife, she'll be like, oh, I should be a better mom in this, or I should be, blah, blah, blah. and you'll hear it by these two words. Usually you'll hear, I should. And then you'll hear it by now, these phrases mm. should, and by now should. And by now here's a practice to know if you're doing that, you're listening for that, but then you got to ask yourself the follow-up question compared to who, mm-hmm. right? So you, somebody's walking uh, with the Lord and they're like, man, I should know about that by now. I should be over that sin by now. I should have a bigger and broader faith by now. You got to ask yourself, compared to who? Right? And, and what you'll find is that you're comparing yourself with this false version of you who's always a little holier, always a little bit more patient, always a little bit more successful. And the thing that breaks you out is this, this is when you have to preach to yourself. That God does not know the imposter version of you, the fantasy version of you. God doesn't know that version of you because God only knows true things. And the one that he knows and loves and sent his son to die for is the version of you right now that you think doesn't measure up, is inadequate, is broken, and has all none of his stuff together. That's real. That's true. And that's the person that Jesus died for. And so in these if-onlys, this fantasy present, man, we, I've just seen people burdened so much by thinking like God is just as disappointed with them as they are when compared to their fantasy version of themselves. Can you imagine how it would free you if, if you're like, no, you know what? Like, no, this, this version of me right now, the one who loses his temper at his kids, the one who grows impatient, the one who's really insecure, the one who feels like, just doesn't have what it takes like this is the god this is the one that jesus died for this is the one that jesus calls beloved and so i can say even if i don't measure up to the imposter version of me in my imagination i'm going to worship you because you died for the real me not the uh upside version of me you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah i'm not sure if you're a marvel fan but it really reminds me of kind of like the multiverse right we're always kind of like thinking it's a mul- the multiverse version of us that's a little bit better, had better situations than, <laughs> than we currently are. Yeah, you know, I mean, gosh, if that all that stuff had come out, like every time we watch What If, my kids are like, Dad, this should have gotten in the book, you know? <laughs> um, but even in the DC comics, I mean, in the book, I compare Superman and Bizarro, Superman. Mm-hmm. And uh, if we're really honest, every time we are, the, the, the life that we're living right now feels like the Bizarro version. And we're always comparing ourselves with the Superman version of us. And we never win. We never win. The freeing thing 
is, and this is where the gospel collides with us, is Jesus didn't die for Superman. Jesus died for the bizarro version. And so you can worship him. You can worship him. That's awesome. Um, you know, to put kind of your thoughts from your book just in a very kind of um, kind of a, a very real sort of context here, um, you know, there, as you're probably familiar, there's lots of stories out there of people who have been burned by the church and who have, you know, are becoming very public about it. And um, some may even, you know, think of this idea of even if, and they might even think of it as like, hey, that's just like, here's, it's just a passive acceptance of fate, basically, right? Mm-hmm. Um, others might be like, oh, this is kind of like super spiritual, kind of pie in the sky kind of outlook on life. Um, that's just kind of like a, a coping mechanism to escape from the hard realities. How would you respond uh, to those kind of concerns, um, especially with how, you know, how the Bible might talk on uh, the goodness and the presence of God? I, you know, this is my favorite question. I loved this question uh, because the, the, the long and short of it is, and I'll give it some detail, but the, the, the simplest way I can put it is the even if life is not an even so life. And that even so is the idea of like that passivity, the fatalism, que sera, sera, you know, that's just going to be, no, 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 no. That's not the even if life. Uh, in fact, that what I'm trying to do in this book is to declare that our faith has to be far more ambidextrous, uh, to borrow a phrase. And it's the ambidextrity of the goodness of God in one hand and the trouble of life in the other. And that we hold both in the tension. Mm-hmm. The, the way that the even if life, like when we think about the hard stuff of life, one of the practices of the even if life is to say what is so. And for, I mean, in an Asian culture, so difficult to do because you're always trying to save face. What's appropriate? What's proper? You know, you're trying to read the room. You're trying to really give honor. To say what is so is to come before God and say, God, this is what I had hoped it would happen. It didn't. I am so disappointed, confused, hurt. It's to say like Psalm 13, how long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? That sometimes the biblical uh, practice of this is lament, which is getting a lot lately, is getting a lot of attention, which it rightfully needs to, the idea of lament. Um, um People of color cultures are, are much better at lament because we embrace when we see suffering. But to say it and to say what is so, you're saying it, you're declaring it, you're not sugarcoating it, you're not doing what I call the Ned Flanders, you know, Christian spin on it. You're, you're saying, this is what is so, this is terrible, this stinks, we're going to say what is so, and we're also going to declare your goodness. That's what the even if life is. Hmm. it is not just, oh, it's not too bad. We'll get over it. Like those guys looking, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego looking at a furnace, they're not saying, oh, well, actually it's not too hot in there. You know, I think we'll be okay. Or, right, like, oh, there is there is no furnace, right? Let's just think positive. <laughs> no, they're like, okay, you throw us in this fire, our God can save us. That is a serious statement, especially if you think about their background. Like, how did they end up there? Like, God handed over their city because of their in judgment over their sins and maybe not even their sins, maybe the sins of their parents and their, their, the generation before them, like God handed over their city. It got destroyed and they're 
trafficked to Babylon, that God is going to save them. That's their declaration. Like, how can they say that? So mind boggling. If you think about their life situation and then they're like, even if he doesn't do it the way we want or what he wants to do, we're not worshiping anyone else. And guess what? How does the story go? God doesn't save them from the, he put the, he allows them to get in the furnace and he puts his presence in there. He delivers them, but he doesn't keep them from the furnace. He doesn't shut the door so it can be unopened or make the fire go out or <laughs> they go into the furnace. And so I really appreciated this question because I don't want to just declare a, just the, ah, suck it up. You'll get through it. Hmm. Which is so much of, uh, gosh, you look at the book of Job right? These friends show up and they're like, you must've done something wrong or come on. Like they want to give him an explanation or they want him to confess an explanation. And all Job can say is like, this is terrible. This is terrible. This is terrible. I just want to have an audience with God. This is terrible. This is terrible. And yet he still worships him. I hope, and I pray that we would have that kind of resilience, especially in these days and the days to come. Uh, that we would have the resilience to say, to be able to speak what is so, and to also declare the goodness of God, ambidextrous faith hmm. uh, for uncertain times. Awesome. Uh, the last question I have for you is um, you organize your book so that it ends with some helpful practices to kind of move the, even if life, you know, from our head to our heart, to our hands. Um, can you talk about the importance of being shaped by our practices? Um, and how you can offer some you know, specific guidance for how to make, even if, shape us as well. Yeah, the, I mean, the first question there is a, is a very philosophical one that I've been thinking about for a while. Um, and a lot of my thinking on this has been influenced by Jamie Smith uh, when he talks about just liturgies, the presence of liturgies all around us. And liturgies are not just for worship gatherings and for the church. Liturgies our ways of acting and conducting ourselves. And some of the illustrations that Jamie Smith gives is he just basically exegetes the liturgy of the shopping mall, right? Mm -hmm. Or the liturgy of the sports event. And we have to recognize that all around us, that we are not just beings who think is what Jamie Smith says. We are also beings who act. And the actions shape the way we think and the thinking shapes the way we act. It is this vicious cycle, so to speak. Mm. Uh, if you don't believe me on that, like just look at your devices and look at the way that apps are designed. They're designed to make us act even before we think. Swipe left, swipe right, right? Uh, bing, sanka, oh, I need to go check. And so these, these liturgies, these, these actions, these practices shape us. Uh, I think the real ramifications or implications we have to think about is for the next generation. Uh, as I think about the discipleship of my five kids, four of them are boys. How uh, am I going to help them form the practices that are going to shape and reinforce the character of godliness that I want to see in them? Sometimes you just need the practices. Um, uh, another way to think about this in a less like uh, severe way is that you know, I, I enjoy the game of golf. And there's just repetition you have to do in the game of golf to get the practices down. And that's really what the shape of practice is. And it's all around us, whether it's our consumer habits or whether it's our spirituality and our relationship with God, the practices through church history, um, 
godly men and women who were trying to grapple with the question of how can we, we be mindful of the presence of God at every moment so that we can pray in every circumstance or pray at all times and give thanks in every circumstance. They come up with all these practices, these the early morning prayer, the midday pause, the evening compline uh, prayers. Hmm. There's these practices that shape us. And so as much as we can say, oh, yeah, yeah, I've declared even if we need these practices, um, particularly if we're going to have that sort of confidence in the goodness of God and the resolve to worship him when it goes sideways, there are practices that we can shape, uh, that can shape us so that we can decide who God is before we get to the furnace. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, uh, we just actually released a, uh, a free family guide on this to help parents think about how to raise even if type kids. Hmm. And the two practices that we try to really, that I think are most graspable are the idea of giving thanks and the idea of speaking what is so. So at each moment, each day, like having a, a, a period to remember God's goodness to you during the day. So uh, I've developed this practice at each evening or usually around nine to nine 30. And it's not that whole 30 minutes. Usually it's about a five to seven minute time of, stopping, turning my device off. Um, I'm, I go very analog with it. I have a little journal and I have four guiding questions for myself that are simply like, where did you see God's, where did you experience God's uh, nearness and goodness today? Uh, where were you not mindful of God's nearness and goodness today? What God, what might God be telling you? And then uh, what resolution, what help do you need for tomorrow? Uh this has made such a difference in my life because I'm, I'm learning and developing the practice of remembering God's goodness during the day. But here's the also after effect as the day goes on, because I know I'm going to do a recap at the end of the day. It's making me more aware during the day of God's goodness, but it's also making me more aware during the day when I'm not recognizing his presence, the mm -hmm. absence of God. And even in the awareness of the absence of God, there's a, there's a sort of goodness that comes that says like, oh my gosh, I lived from noon to five today, God, as if you didn't even exist. Hmm. Oh, forgive me. And to know that God forgives me and says, okay, we're going to try it again tomorrow. That's a goodness that I get to receive. That actually draws me to him. So it's more than just a moral inventory. It's not like, what did I do well? What did I do badly today? It's, it's, it's a very prayerful and short reflection on where did I sense God's presence and where did I not? Right. So that's one practice of, 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 of gratitude. We do this at our table, at our dinner table with our kids. Where did you sense God's goodness today? How has God been good to you today? And the first couple of times, man, it was like crickets. Like nobody's like, oh, gosh, right? And then like, but we kept with it. We kept with it. We kept with it. Um, so that's one thing. And then the second part of it is the practice of actually being able to speak what is so when things aren't good, when it is disappointing um, to lament together mm -hmm. and to be able to speak those things. So that is definitely a practice. Uh, those two things, uh, gratitude and speaking what is so they, they kind of, they reinforce this resolve to worship him when it's not good, when it's hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Very helpful. Um, that, those are all the questions that I have for you. Do, did you have anything else that you'd like to, to share as well? 
Yeah. Um, let me try to think. Cause I, you know, I did speak about like, I just, I want, I don't want people to think that this is a one time, just declare even if, and you'll be fine. You know, <laughs> it's uh, you really wrestle with it, grapple with it, come back and forth with it. Um, yeah. You know, at the end of the book, I put a lot of prayers in there. Um, and the one that I've been getting the most feedback about are, is the one where it's the prayer before you take a risk. And I would add this, that when you know God is good and that you are the beloved and he has done so much already for you, I think it enables you to take faith-filled, wise risks hmm. to take the next step. And I'm actually really excited about what this even if declaration, as people get a hold of this message and join the even if warriors, the kinds of risks they will take for the kingdom. Because I think sometimes we are so afraid to take risks because we ask the what ifs and we're, we're so needing the guarantee of success, even kingdom success, hmm. fruitfulness. And we're often told that if we don't get the fruitfulness or the kingdom success that we think we were, we're supposed to getting that it must not have been God's will or it must, God must not have been in it. And so we don't take that step until we can be guaranteed that we're going to get the success. Hmm. But if we could, if, if churches even could develop this even if sort of thing can you imagine the kind of risks they would take for the kingdom Hmm. that even if we step out in this and people are really upset and they have an opposition to it we're going to worship you god because we're trying to do this to honor you that even if mentality that even if faith i'm really asking god as the message is goes far and wide that the fruit of people's kingdom ventures would be born and that many people would come to into the kingdom because people took it even if type risk. So that would just add that in there that it's not a just, even if it's not just a response to what's happening or happened, but it's also a way to approach what could happen. Hmm. And, you know, instead of the, what if of fear, we would ask the, what if of possibilities, what if God takes us and does something totally different? Gosh, even if he does that, we're going to worship him. We're going to worship him. Hmm. And I, I I get excited thinking about the possibilities there. Hmm. That's awesome. Well, Mitchell Lee, thank you so much for sharing um, a bit of your story and um, also this book. And I'm, I'm prayerful that it's going to be helpful for many people as well. Thank you so much, man. It was great to chat with you and praying that uh, the message would go far and wide. Thank you for listening to this episode of Faithfully Podcast. If you enjoy this episode, consider subscribing to the show via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. If you'd like to join Faithfully Magazine in its mission to keep Christian media diverse, consider becoming a Faithfully Magazine partner subscriber. Partner subscribers, or FMPs, enjoy full access to our exclusive content and so much more. Just head to faithfullymagazine.com to learn more.